God has led our church family most recently through a series in the closing doxology of Romans and then into the doxological prayer of the disciples' prayer in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. And our prayer is still that our God would glorify himself through us. And his word is tuning our hearts to that end. Today, would you please turn with me again to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Um, Lord willing, we have today and then two more sermons on prayer. And both of those sermons will be taken from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so the next two weeks after this, two more sermons on prayer, not specifically from the prayer pattern that we've been studying, but those truths that are context for praying, those context truths. Today, a kingdom orientation. Prayer is the expression that we treasure the kingdom of Christ over the kingdoms of men. Father, who we pray to, the freedom that prayer gives us from living with anxiety, things like that. So coming up in the next few weeks. For today, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. A description of the nature of those treasures is that moth and rust destroy them. They're, they're temporal, they're passing. Thieves break in and steal them. It's just to, it's total wisdom instruction. Don't stockpile something that can quickly be taken away. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where those things won't happen. Moth and rust don't destroy. Thieves don't break in and steal. Here's the reason why it's good to operate as a steward that way. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Beautifully simple. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. I mean, if your eye is healthy. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Because no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Would you please be seated? And then children, you can be dismissed to uh, Children's Church. Sending those kids off to the children's classes reminds me, um, we have a bunch of birthdays in our faith family today. There's a whole bunch of them. You have one, right? Yeah. Yeah, the Sparks have one. And my wife's birthday is today. Marin, uh, Marin, uh, no, not Marin. Soren's birthday is today. They're out of town. Andrew, um, Andrew uh, Smith, his birthday is today. Yeah, a bunch of birthdays. And there's probably some I don't know. So if you see people, just assume it's their birthday and wish them happy birthday. Martin Lloyd Jones tells a tells a story. Martin Lloyd Jones is a. It's just an amusing character. He had a great wit about him. 
And he tells a story about one day this farmer comes running in the house to tell his wife that the, the family's best cow just birthed twins. We got two, two cows out of our best cow. And he says in his excitement, he says, I've decided that in thankfulness, I'm going to dedicate one of the animals to the Lord. And his wife says, well, which, which one's the Lord? Well, they're, they're twins. You know, when the day comes and, and we sell them off at market, you know, one of the sales will go to the Lord and the other one will go back to the farm. A couple weeks later, he comes back in the, far, in the farmhouse and his head sits down. And he says, I have bad news. The Lord's calf just died. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a humorous example of what is probably a more convicting truth. That, that way we see things. The way we see things as the things we need versus the things about the kingdom of Christ and how quickly we are to value the things we need, we think we need, over the kingdom of Christ. Christ, here in his sermon, addresses what I think is just a pinnacle mark. It's one of these, one of these really vivid expressions of Christ-likeness. Being kingdom-oriented. In Luke 2, Jesus is not even a teenager yet, and he stays behind at the temple, and his parents panic. When they finally find him, he says this, why were you looking for me? Don't you know that I'm doing my father's business? He, he had kingdom orientation. In John 2, when he comes to the wedding, his mom comes and says, they're out of wine. He says, well, what, what business is this, is this of mine? My hour hasn't come yet. Jesus was just always thinking about kingdom purpose and orientation. In Matthew 26, he's in the garden, and he says, I know what I want, but not what I want, Father, but what you want. Let your will be done. Christ exhibits this kingdom priority and then teaches us to do the same here as he has done. So prayer the treasuring of heaven in Matthew 6, 19-24. Over this past month, we've been walking through the disciples' prayer that Jesus taught. We're taught there to pray like Christ with kingdom priorities, like Christ. What's Christ doing in this section? I would say this. Christ is stomping out hypocritical worship. He's just squashing hypocritical worship. Right? Hypocritical worship in giving he says when they give, they, they want to sound trumpets and signs, and they want to be seen. When they pray, they go out in the street corner, they want to be seen. In the verses right before the one we're studying right now, he talks about fasting. When they fast, they, they look all pitiful, and they want to be seen. And each one of those, Jesus says, they have what they wanted. They have what they wanted. They have what they wanted. What did they want? They wanted notoriety. And their worship looked like that. They wanted their comforts to be satisfied. They were comfortable being perceived as famous religious people. That was a different culture, right? There are not a lot of famous religious people. People in our culture are famous for other things, famous for how much money they have, famous for their athletic ability, famous for their acting, but they're not generally famous for their religion. They wanted to be famous for their religion. That's what they wanted. Here's what I want to say to us today. 
what are your priorities? What are your priorities? What, what's, that, what's that perceived need that you want to have met? Ah, oh, it's a hard question to answer. Let me make it easier. What do you pray for? That's the lesson for us today. How are we kingdom-oriented in our praying? The heart of this paragraph is in verse 21. 21 is the instruction to us. It's a good teacher, Jesus, telling us the lesson. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. So today, here's what I want to take us through, okay? I think, you've seen the paragraph, there are, there are three sections. Um, or I should say in the section, there are kind of three paragraphs. The first one just points out treasure. Don't have earthly priorities of treasure, but have heavenly priorities for treasure. The second one is about all the stuff about light and eyes. I'm, I'm going to call that perspective. And then the third one is about service, and I'm going to call that one worship. Okay? So the three points are just going to be this. The treasure the perspective, the worship. That's how, that's how the sermon's going to unfold, okay? The treasure, the perspective, the worship, all right? So we're going to walk through those three. <laughs> Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy it and thieves don't steal it, for, here's why. Here's why we should be this way. Because our hearts matter. Our passions matter. Our priorities matter. Our worship matters. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Lord talks about money more than anything else. Do you know that Jesus talked about money 15 times more than any? other category of things he taught about? Wow. Does that mean that Jesus was obsessed with money? No. But it meant he knew his audience was. Jesus didn't teach this way because Jesus needed our money. Jesus taught this way because he knew that we might become obsessed and make money and means an idol. So in light of that, we're warned don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up. Thusaras. Does that sound like anything to you? Thusaras. It's actually spelled the same. It means to organize for storage. You can see the picture, right? You can see the picture of someone having abundant resource. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's cars. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's trading cards, whatever it is. How many of you collected trading cards when you were younger? Like, like sports? Yeah, I collected trading cards. And the best thing to do was organize them and you know, put them in a binder of some kind and then you store them. That's the picture. Don't organize for storage your earthly treasure. Making temporal wealth something you obsess about rather than making temporal wealth a kingdom resource. 
1 Timothy 6, 8 tells us about we should be content with food and clothes. Again, there's so many things in the Bible that are just beautifully simple. We should be content with food and clothes. But the passage goes on, and it says, The rich fall into temptation, into a snare. That plunges people into ruin. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving for money that some have walked away from the faith piercing themselves with many pangs. We have examples of this. You remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, there was a man named Achan. He saw this beautiful Babylonian garment and jewels and a, and a, a chunk of gold. He lusted at it. He wanted that monetary thing. And he took it and he buried it under his tent and he was punished by God for it. I mean, it's greed and the lust for Earthly wealth, it's not hard to see. Solomon's kingdom is wounded by his love for money. Paul writes about a young man named Demas who forsakes the gospel work because he loves the creature comforts, the means of this life. So, so Christ says that is a real danger. Being obsessed with temporal things. It, it might be cash. It might be money. It might be stocks. It might be saving. Whatever. Being obsessed. It might be time. It might be your home. It might be your children. Being obsessed with temporal things is a real danger. So Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, would you just note with me that Jesus doesn't say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth but lay up for myself treasures in heaven. You notice that Jesus doesn't say that? Jesus isn't asking us to give us, give him our money instead of give us our money. He's saying, still invest it in what's good for you, but don't invest it here, invest it there. Still invest it in what's good for you. Here's the question. Don't categorize for storage all your earthly wealth and then hoard it. That's an expression of idolatry. But lay up treasure in heaven. I wrote this. What is treasure laid up in heaven? Question mark. What is it? Simply, it's earthly means exchanged into those treasures of the kingdom of Christ. Okay? We need a little more than that to know how to do this tomorrow. That's what it is. How do we do it? It's the use of what is significant in one kingdom being applied to another kingdom. The, the vivid picture of that that comes to my mind is when the Eastern kings come to the birth of Jesus and they bring things that are really valuable in their culture, in their kingdom. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they take those things to the birth, the advent of a king, and they say, here, these are valued things in our kingdom. We put them at your feet as gifts, saying, we've been taught, maybe by Daniel, that your kingdom is more to be treasured 
and the kingdom will come to you. Lay up treasure in heaven. If, if you were praying along with me, you might have noticed that I said during the offering prayer that offering is a great chance to take things that could buy you something and put it in the plate and say, this money being sent to mission is more treasurable than whatever that money could have been used to do otherwise. A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I went up, met with, we have this financial advisor who's a good friend of mine, a lot of you probably know him. Um, and I knew I hadn't been super disciplined in putting money into retirement in 2020. And you get to that point in 2022 where they're like, okay, you can still make 2021 contributions until this date, you know, I'm in that point, which is when my friend calls me and says, hey, you know, you haven't made any retirement contributions. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. Please lose my number. And so then I, I go and I see my friend and, and talk to my wife. I'm like, hey, how much do you think we should put in? And so we write this check. This is hands shaking. We're writing a check. I'm going to throw this money into an account. Oh. So I break the check and I give it to him reluctantly. He's like, moves it out of my hand. So I make this contribution. And then I come home and I'm standing in my kitchen, like right after making that contribution to retirement. I said to my family, this was a couple weeks ago. I wasn't even thinking about this passage. I said, I really want to retire now because we just put that money in there. And we could live like a month on that money. That's first 21. I had just made a treasure investment in a future season of my life called retirement. And as soon as I made the investment, I wanted to be there right away. That's exactly the way it is with whatever resource we don't hoard in this life, but instead we apply to saying the coming kingdom is going to be better. And so we make that investment and immediately our hearts are shaped into longing for where the investment is. The question is, how are we doing with this? Let's, let's be super practical and let's not be vague and talk about like, a bunch of resources. Let's just talk about money. Let's talk about money itself. Okay. Um, by the way, uh, this is one of the few times that you're going to hear me preach a sermon about money. But in the end, you're going to be disappointed because the sermon's not about money. So this is about the closest I'm going to get. So be real thankful I'm talking about money now because in the end, it's not going to be about money. Okay. So let's talk about money. How are Christians doing with investing money into a future that makes their heart long for that future, okay? How are they doing? Well, just in terms of money, nonprofitsource.com. You can expect this to be bad. The average giving in the Protestant church is $17 a week per person. $17 a week per person. That's the average giving of a Protestant church goer. That's like us. That's us. That's not just religious people. Protestant church goers who are putting money in the plate, $17. 37%, over one-third of all people who go to church regularly to evangelical churches <clears throat> admit they don't give anything. They don't do that. Probably, probably some justification about grace or something. You know, uh, we're not under the law. You know, that, that sort of handling of scripture. 
So how are we doing with just the money? Well, as a group of Protestant or evangelicals, we're not doing great. Let me give you three pastoral exhortations specifically about money. The first one is the first one is this one. We can't compartmentalize our money and our faith. Jesus will not permit us to compartmentalize our money and our faith. In Mark 10, 21, Jesus is talking to a rich young man, and he's talking to him about his need for faith. He's talking about his need for salvation. And the guy's like, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm morally upstanding. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're lacking something. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man walks away sorrowful because he has a lot of stuff. He has categorized for storage a lot of stuff. And Jesus says, well, if you really want to be about the kingdom, go sell your earthly stuff and invest it in the kingdom. And the man walked away sorrowful. Not interested. So the first thing I would say is you can't compartmentalize. Don't assume that you can have a stalwart, mature, glowing, radiant faith and be stingy. They're, they're inseparable. The fact that money is, secondly, the fact that money is hard-earned. And the fact that money, as I'm speaking, is losing its value doesn't change the principle. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, we read about the Macedonians. The Bible says, in a severe test of their afflictions, from their extreme poverty, there has overflowed a wealth of generosity. They gave beyond their means, even begging us earnestly to let them take part in an offering. Out of their deep poverty, I want you to know pastorally, that the fact that we're living in what seems like a downturn in our economy doesn't change the biblical principle. You will be tempted to stockpile more as you watch news about the economy become increasingly negative. But the biblical principle is not bound to economic prosperity or downturn. The third pastoral exhortation I would give you is this. The amount of giving is not of first importance. The amount of our giving is not of first importance. In Mark 12, 43, you know that story about the, the widow who gave the mite? It's called the widow's mite. Jesus says, look, I tell you the truth, she has given more generously than any of the rest of them. Now, I just want to say one quick word about the whole widow's mite thing. Jesus is not telling widows to give their last penny to build gaudy temples. You know what the next thing Jesus says is? You know the very next thing Jesus says after he says, look at the widow. She gave more than anybody else. He says all that stuff that they're raising money for, that's keeping it. I just want to be clear about the widow's mic story. This passage isn't about money. This passage is about priority. Our Lord, our Savior, knows <clears throat> that we will tend to obsess about monetary provision. So he tells us that the way we perceive our monetary provisions will orient our heart, and vice versa. This is Christ's teaching, and it's Christ's testament. Remember when Jesus was in front of Pilate in John 18? And like I said in the opening, Jesus just lived out this 
otherness to the kingdom. Just pilgrim perspective all the time. Pilate's like, you trying to overthrow our kingdom? No. My kingdom's not even of this world. You do whatever you want. You want, you want a kingdom? Go ahead. Play king for a little while. I'm talking about a kingdom without end. If my kingdom was of this world, I would have soldiers, and they would fight. My kingdom's not of this world. So he invites Pilate to go ahead and play while the time remains. Pretend to be a ruler. I'm not a king competing for that. I'm of another kingdom. That is really encouraging invitation to better forgiveness. We've already learned that forgiveness is the currency. Forgive us as we've been forgiven. We have these debts. We live in this in this economy of mutual forgiveness because we've been forgiven. Now here, we learn what to do with these monetary things that we have. How do you steward your treasure? Now, we won't steward our treasure well if we don't see well. Okay? So let me go on to the second point. The first one is treasure. The second one is perspective. When I was a boy, um, we had gone to visit friends who lived up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And we were staying at their home, and I was in a guest bedroom. And the particular bedroom I was in did not have a window. It means I was sleeping in the closet. But it did not have a window. And in the night, I woke up needing to use the restroom. And there was no light source at all in the window I woke up in. At all. And I'm in a strange bedroom. I don't know the path from the bed I'm in to the door that gets me to the hallway that leads me to the restroom. And the clock is ticking, right? I'm needing to find the restroom. And so I got up, and I thought, okay, let's see, when I went to bed, I think I was laid like this, and my head was here. The door should be right. Boom! I walked into a wall. Oh, okay, hold on, hold on. Let me go back over here. Okay, here's the bed. I couldn't see a thing. I was feeling my way around the room. Finally, after bumping into several walls, someone in the house woke up and came and opened the door. What are you doing? Ah, the door. Excuse me. I, I couldn't find the way out. There was no light source. My perspective was totally broken. I had no orientation to what was the path to leave the room. When we have only darkness, our perspective of what we're stewarding is going to be wrong. Managing my way out of a dark room became impossible. Managing all the resources that God's blessed me with is going to be totally impossible if I'm walking in darkness. So let's talk secondly about perspective. And it's where Jesus gives this illustration about the eye as a window. So in verse 22, perspective. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eye is the lamp, the window of the body. He uses a reference to the eye as this window through which light shines and we see correctly. Too often, our perspective is out of focus. We become unconvinced about good investment 
about kingdom priority because we just don't see right now. I'm convinced that this is true of a lot of Christians. It's, it's a matter of perspectives. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. The way you see what's treasurable will influence the way you behave. Not knowing where the door is meant I walked into a wall. Not knowing the legitimate prize of the kingdom of Christ as greater than this momentary treasured life will lead us to walk into functional walls. So this, I think, is a very significant, even universal struggle for all of us. How do we see our own kingdom building versus the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Sometimes we hear people complain, I just can't understand the Bible. God seems distant and unrelated to my day-to-day needs. Sometimes they're confused about the call of Christian living or the preeminence of God's kingdom. And let me just say, that will always be the case for the people who know their way around stock exchange or the gym or the supermarket or the mall better than they know their way around scripture. It just doesn't seem like all of the kingdom stuff I'm reading is real. That's because you have exposed yourself to things that make your experience define what you think is more substantive. You've become familiar with things that are other than the kingdom. Listen to the scripture example, 2 Corinthians 4. The light momentary affliction that we're going through is not worthy to be compared with this eternal weight of glory. So if I'm just putting the two things, the here and now and and glory on a scale, I mean glory just wins. Okay, and here's what he says. As we look not on the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things we're seeing are transient. They're here for a moment and gone. But the things that we're not seeing with our physical eyes, those things are eternal. Perspective. And here's the challenge with perspective. We're being invited to focus our attention on things we can't see. I understand that's challenging. Focusing our perspective on things we can't see with physical eyes. Do we see spiritually? Is our vision of God and his will clouded by a sort of spiritual cataracts or nearsightedness? bring us to an unhealthy preoccupation. Um, If you were to go to Cairo, Egypt, you would find in Cairo two tombs, two burial sites. 
both of wealthy young men. The first one I'll describe for you is the burial site of Tutankhamun. His golden coffin was buried inside a golden coffin, which was buried inside a, guess, golden coffin. When they exhumed his burial site, there were literally tons of gold buried in there. And the ruler died in the darkness, apart from the light. Now, in Cairo, you can go visit that first site. And then if you drive to actually the other end of town, and if you know what you're looking for, you go down an alley and you find a very old, unkept cemetery. And there you would find another burial site, a burial site of a young man named William Corden. He died in 1913. Like I said before, he was also born to a wealthy family. He went to Yale. As a young adult man, he was ready to take over the family wealth, the family business. But he had been called into a different perspective. He came to the realization that the souls of Muslim people in Cairo were of greater treasure than the family wealth. And so he informed his family, much to their disapproval, that he was headed to Cairo to share the message of Christ with Muslims. And he died shortly after arriving. But if you know what you're looking for and you go and find his burial site, you will find a faint inscription that says this, apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. That's true. Apart from walking by faith, this doesn't make sense. Apart from seeing the invisible, he made a huge mistake. Apart from seeing the unseen, he's kind of a fool. But in seeing the unseen, in treasuring what's not seen and not transient, life like that can't be wasted. That's a life that treasures worship over comfort or means or rusting treasure. Okay, so treasure principle. Perspective. Do we have the light of the gospel, of the kingdom of Christ? It's great and endless worth that transcends the momentary delight of this kingdom. Do we have that perspective? Now, let me talk lastly about treasure. Verse 24. <clears throat> treasure, perspective, worship. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, you can't serve both. He says you're God and money. You can't serve both. The final verse of this section is that there is this mutually exclusive nature of serving God and serving something else. Mutually exclusive. There's, there's not a flow chart of worship. Like, I, I kind of I worship this thing, and in turn, then that thing, and then because I'm worshiping this thing and that thing, then God gets worship. That's it's mutually exclusive. There is either worship of God or other. 
Man cannot have two masters. I wonder how many of you, you don't need to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you have had a moment in your life where you had to work two jobs. It's always complicated, isn't it? Like you're going to the one manager and say, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't work that weekend. I was scheduled at my other job to work that weekend. And that manager says, that's not my problem. And you go to that other manager and say, I was scheduled over the same time. Okay, that's a headache. But that's not quite what's said here. He calls them masters. Not employers, not managers, masters. It makes perfect sense that a guy can't be subservient to two different authorities. You can't be in subjection, like a servant or a slave, to two opposing masters. You can't. You're either going to come to a point where you despise one and say, enough, I have to be over here exclusively. Or vice versa. That's beautifully plain and really concerning. Because we're all in this moment of stewardship. Real stewardship's happening right now. And if my vision is like in a dark room without any light, I'll walk into a wall, meaning I'll say to the endless, treasurable kingdom, I can't do that anymore. And I'll just live in this other economy, this other kingdom. That exists for a little while. That sounds like a real warning, a real risk. The reason for the resentment is because these two masters are asking their subject to do what is irrational. Walk by faith. No, no, no. Walk by sight. Be humble. No, no, no. Be proud. Light, darkness, things visible, things invisible. Things eternal, things temporal. To this, James Boyce says, where riches are allowed to hold dominion on our heart, God will not have authority. In our recent study in Romans 1, we saw that there were those people, describing humanity generally, that didn't want to acknowledge God. They wouldn't fill their gaze with him, so they would seek to fill it with something else. They didn't want, in Romans 1, to acknowledge the clearly seen, powerful God. So they worshiped the created thing rather than the creator. The Bible says they traded the truth in for a lie. They worshiped birds, animals, creeping things, but not God. They wouldn't let the light of the glory of God into their eyes. And what did it lead them to? Saying to that master, we despise you. We'll go over here. We'll worship birds, animals, creeping things. This third category, this is the heart of the matter. The heart is the matter. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The Bible tells us that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. You might, you might know that text. It's in James 4. Do you know right now the context of James 4? 
what causes fighting? You want stuff that you don't have. So you fight. Quarrel. Jealous. You ask wrongly. You ask God for things, wanting to heap those things to yourself and your own kingdom. But don't you know God yearns jealously over the spirit, small s, not Holy Spirit, over the spirit that he may dwell in you. Let me just review. You've probably heard me express this before. The spirit that he may dwell in us is not less than the propensity to attribute worth that humans have. You've heard me say this before, right? I mean, if I, if I take my cat, as if I would have a cat, if I take my cat, to, forgive me, if I take my cat to uh, watch the World Series, I'm like, here, whiskers, <laughs> sit in the seat and watch Game 7 with me. The cat's like, whatever. Now, admittedly, it's baseball. I wouldn't be far behind. But the cat, the cat is going to have absolutely no interest in Game 7 of the World Series. Thousands of dollars I've paid for me and Whiskers to go watch Game 7. And the cat's like, I don't care. The ability to be able to behold things that are truly treasures is the spirit that God breathed into man, unique in all creation. Created to be worshipers. Therefore, the breath of God breathed into us. So that when we saw, when we beheld his glory, we would know it was transcendent. It was awesome. And then you fight the world, the lust, the wanting, the striving. And then we pray so that we can have more things than the competing kingdom. God yearns jealously for our worship, and money is a really great means to express worship. Our prayer, our treasure, our perspective, our worship, they're indivisible. Praying. James makes the link in James 4. We we pray God Give me more things from the counterfeit kingdom that will make me less passionate about yours. What foolish praying. We are taught in the Lord's Prayer to prioritize the kingdom in prayer. And then we're taught here in the Lord's Sermon how to treasure the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, let's not be hypocrites. Let's not be hypocrites. Remember when I told you all the hypocrites got what they wanted. What's Jesus doing in this context? He's stamping out hypocritical worship. He's making it obvious it's not worship at all. They got what they wanted. What they wanted was earthly, temporal, 
creature satisfied. Namely, notoriety. Are we praying like that? Does our prayer assure us that the kingdom of heaven is more significant to us than the kingdom of men? If we want the American dream, or if I want the wealth that comes in a capitalistic economy, if what I need is first world preacher comforts, it's going to become evident in my prayer really quickly. Let me just reverse engineer that. The Lord teaches us to pray, hallow your name, magnify your kingdom, accomplish your judicial will. Out from that praying, comes all the answer to economics. All economics are answered. Your family budget is answered in hallow your name. Problem solved. That's where, I told you, this is kind of my, maybe it's a money sermon. To me, this sermon has nothing to do with money. I mean, put a shoe in the offering plate. Walk home with a limp. But do it as a worshiper, and I'm good. Does that make sense? This isn't a sermon about money, and they're never about money. Jesus' sermon isn't about money. It's about our hearts. It's about our God. Jealous for the spirit we've made right. Where we can look at paper, checks, kingdom currencies, and we can say, shh. Take this. I know I know everyone around me says this is worth a lot, but I'm totally convinced with my perspective that there's something worth more. So here, just let me let me give gold and frankincense and myrrh at the feet of Jesus. The hypocrite's zeal was for notoriety. That was what they wanted. That's what made them comfortable. What's our creaturely comfort? What is it we really, really want? You know, admittedly, I feel a little bit of guilt. In fact, I just put a bunch of money into retirement. I get to 65 and just die. That'd be okay. Better yet, I could have a sharp mind until I was like 75 and preach until then, and then just die. That's even better. What do I want? That's a hard question. What do you pray for? Pray like that. Hallow your name. Your kingdom come. I want you to rule on earth as you do in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the instruction of Jesus. This is good, plain teaching for us. Thank you, Lord, for leading us like sheep. We don't always have good understanding. So you gently and slowly lead us along these paths of righteousness. Thank you for the instruction about 
worship. Money is just one small caveat in the greater life purpose of worship. And so make us steward everything. Make us give everything. Share everything. With the perspective, with our eyes allowing in the light of Jesus Christ and our perspective being illuminated. Knowing the way from here to the end. Lord, your spirit keep teaching us the great work of our coming kingdom over the fleeting significance of this world. Glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand with